have you guys heard of the, the new restaurant uh, in town called Karma? Karma. There's no menu, but you get what you deserve. So go try it out. Terrible? Boo? That was, no? Okay. Men, if you come on Tuesday, you're going to get what you deserve. Barbecue. Bam. Okay, there you go. All right. Grab your Bibles and turn to the book of Revelation chapter 2. We started a series a couple weeks ago, a few weeks ago, on the seven churches of Revelation. Today we're moving on to the second church that Jesus talked about, which is the church of Smyrna. Uh, go ahead and put up that picture. It's already up. Awesome. Um, the Jesus addresses, the risen Lord addresses these seven churches going in clockwise direction, beginning at Ephesus and going clockwise. So we're, we're now on Smyrna. Again, the context here is in the year uh, 96 AD, 65 years after Jesus resurrected, John, the apostle, is the only apostle left. Uh, the, all the other apostles had been martyred at this point, and John was exiled by Emperor Domitian to the island of Patmos, where he received this prophetic revelation that's written in our Bibles today. On this island, Jesus appeared to the now a significantly aged apostle. You remember when, when, when Jesus was walking the earth and the apostles were with him? I mean, they were, they were young men, probably maybe late teenagers, 20s. They were young men. Now John is um, in his 90s. Um, he's very much aged. And Jesus gives this uh, message of encouragement, instruction, and counsel to these seven churches that have been established. Um, and, and here John is on the island of Patmos. We understand, of course, that the messages that Jesus gave uh, to these seven churches were not just for them, of course, but they're for all of Christ's followers throughout history and around the world. Today, I want uh, just to remind you and to help you see that these letters from the Lord Jesus are intended for you. They're intended to be encouragement for you, instruction for you. The risen Lord Jesus loves you, and he has not left us without instruction, counsel, correction, encouragement. The context we're going to see here in a minute is that the church of Smyrna was a heavily persecuted church. They were the most persecuted of the seven churches that Jesus wrote to uh, by far. What does the risen Lord say? What is the instruction he has for the church that is under pressure? How many of you here have ever been under pressure? I've been under pressure before. How many of you here, you've been under pressure for the sake of your faith? You've been under pressure, persecution perhaps, for the sake of your confession of faith and following Jesus. It does happen. And here in the United States, we are um, somewhat insulated from heavy persecution. Well, we all receive ridicule, persecution in those small ways. But how many know that around the world, um, many of the churches around the world are heavily persecuted? I just saw something, it was either last night or this morning, that there was a church in Africa that was burned down. They're just burning down churches. They're, they're heavily persecuted churches around the world. Thank God we live in a country where, for the most part, we've been able to operate um, under, under freedom of religion. 
But Jesus has instructions for this church that's under pressure. And I believe we can learn many things from this church. And I believe if, if you ever go and minister on a missions trip to a persecuted church in a persecuted region, man, um, look at what the risen Lord said to the church of Smyrna and take some instructions from what he um, had for them. Um, it's worth noting that Smyrna was one of two churches that Jesus had no correction for. He had no rebuke for. Um, he had no critique of them, and he, di- he didn't highlight any particular weakness for the church of Smyrna. I talked about this a few weeks ago, but remember Jesus, he gave a pattern of instruction, encouragement, and correction to the churches. I kind of coined the phrase, the Jesus love sandwich. He gives them the love sandwich. How many remember what the love sandwich is? That is this. If you have something critique, something critical to say to someone, you pair it with a little encouragement because the, it goes down a little smoother with some encouragement, does it not? It's like, um, it's like, you know, certain foods go well with certain wines. You know, red meat goes well with red wine. Uh, fish goes well with white wines, right? Well, listen, a little critique goes down well with a little encouragement behind it or in front of it or both. So here's the, here's the love sandwich. Many of you have had this done to you or have done this. I love you very much. What you're doing isn't working. I love you very much. And what do you do? You feed that to someone. Say, take a bite of this. And they chew it. And they're like, hmm, I like the bread. The bread's good. The bread is delicious. The meat, I don't know, it might be rotten, but I'll, I'll eat it because the bread was so good, right? That's the love sandwich, okay? How, how many of you that's ever been done to you before? You've ever been love sandwiched, right? Yes, we all have, right? I think. How many of you have ever done this to someone else? Right, it's a good tactic um, to to helping affirm people that we love you. There's a lot of good things going on, but here's something you need to work on. Jesus does this something very similar to the seven churches in Revelation because he has he loves them, he has instruction for them, he has encouragement for them, he has counsel for them, and so. With the church of Smyrna, it's slightly different. He has accommodation for them. He says, hey, here's your strengths. Here's what you're doing well. We find no correction given to the church of Smyrna. And there is, of course, counsel, instruction, and then he points to a crown that they will one day have. Now, in the case of Smyrna, again, there's no rebuke for them. I infer that there's no correction to them for one of two reasons. Either... Number one, they had no obvious weaknesses or obvious opportunities that needed to be addressed. And honestly, persecution does have a way of refining our lives a little bit, does it not? Uh, It has a way of refining our motives. It has a way of refining us. Sometimes trials and tribulation actually just help us get a little bit more reliant on Jesus. We talked about distractions here a little bit ago, but, you know, sometimes God allows some things to come into our life to get our focus back on Jesus, amen? And so that could be reason number one. The reason number two is perhaps it was the case that the church in Smyrna was just barely hanging on because they were undergoing so much persecution. I don't know about you, but have you ever gone to talk to someone and you're like, I have, a, I have something I got to tell them. I got a critique for them. And then you start talking to them and you realize like, oh, they're like barely hanging on. So you're like, I'll just set that aside. We won't talk about that now. I'm just going to encourage you right now, right? Maybe that was the case with the church of Smyrna. Regardless, Jesus didn't have a specific uh, critique for them. He did have encouragement for them. But you will see here in a moment that this was kind of a tough um, letter to the church of Smyrna, Okay. Before we get into the text and dissect it a little bit, I want to give you a little um, 
history about the church of Smyrna. Uh, in order to do that, I have a quick video uh, I want to play because I want you to kind of see the, the setting and the context of this church. So go ahead and roll that video. Smyrna, an ancient city now surrounded by the modern Turkish city of Izmir, was originally established around 1000 BC. Greek settlers established Old Smyrna on this small peninsula jutting out into the Aegean Sea. Now it was in Old Smyrna that the famous Greek poet Homer, author of the Iliad and the Odyssey, was born around 850 BC. History tells us that a shrine to Homer stood in the city during the Roman period. After the time of Alexander the Great in the late 4th century BC, New Smyrna was built by the Seleucids along the coast and up these slopes of Mount Pagus. Now this region eventually developed into Asia province during the Roman period and Smyrna, strategically located between Ephesus to the south and Pergamum to the north, developed into a wealthy port city. In fact, it was one of the most important cities of the entire province with a population of nearly 100,000 residents. During the Roman period, ancient historians said that Smyrna was a city of great beauty and impressive architecture that circled Mount Pegasus like a crown. There was a great harbor, a massive agora, and a theater on the northwest mountain slope that could hold 20,000 people. This wealthy city was also known for its exceptionally good wine. Smyrna was severely damaged by an earthquake in 178 AD, but was quickly rebuilt. Now the layout of the city we see here today and most of these structures are pretty much the same as they were in the late first century when John was writing. Here's a portion of John's second letter in the book of Revelation. To the angel of the church in Smyrna writes, I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Revelation 2, 8 through 10. The, the letter to the Church of Smyrna was not necessarily, this isn't like shouting preaching today. Um, he said, you've undergone persecution, and unfortunately, I'm here to tell you, Jesus was honest with them, there's more persecution coming. What does the risen Lord want to say to the church that is under persecution? Smyrna was, uh, in many people's opinion, the most beautiful um, city in Asia Minor at the time. And the word um, Smyrna comes from the word myrrh. Myrrh, of course, is a, is a, is a resin that gives off a um, sweet fragrance. And in order to extract resin from a, from a tree, you, you have to wound the tree. And that resin pours out and it has to, has to harden. And um, how many of you here, you have like resin in your home, or uh, some myrrh resin in your homes? Any of you? You? We do? Yeah. Wow. I didn't know this. Come on. Let's talk later. <laughs> I didn't know this. Guys don't really get into the, you know, the myrrh. Anyway. Um, but 
uh, it has a, um, a, a mild sweet fragrance to it if you, if you smell it really closely. But if you scratch it or you, you rough it up a little bit, um, that fragrance begins to permeate out. And how many of that is exactly, I think, a prophetic picture of what it was like for the church in Smyrna. How many know that um, persecution at times, it can actually uh, make the fragrance of Christ come from, from out of us? Amen? There's a, there's a quote that, that Todd White says. He says, if you, if you squeeze an orange, you get what? Orange juice. So if you squeeze a Christian, what do you get? You get Jesus. You get Christ, right? If, if, if you're being squeezed, what should come out of you? Christ. Amen? And that is often the picture of us when we're undergoing persecution for his name's sake. Not all suffering is for the glory of God, but there is a type of suffering that is for the glory of God. And the, the type of suffering is when you're being persecuted for his name's sake. He says this, um, it's, well, it says this in 2 Corinthians 2.15, 2, for we are to God the fragrance of Christ. We are to God the fragrance of Christ. He goes on in Revelation 2.8, to the angel of the church of Smyrna, right? These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. Again, we understand that Jesus is likely talking to the local church pastor of Smyrna because the word angel there just simply means messenger. And depending on the context, it can be an angelic being or the word messenger there can be um, translated and, and referred to as a human being. In this case, uh, most people believe that, that Jesus is speaking to the local church pastor. In this case, we do know who the, the, the bishop, the pastor of Smyrna was. The apostle John ordained a man uh, who was 26 years old named Polycarp to be the pastor of the church of Smyrna. Polycarp is an interesting name, isn't it? I don't know if any of you are considering naming your kid Polycarp. I wouldn't. It's, it's not going to go over well um, this day and age. It was an important name back then, but how many know poly, meaning many, and carp being a disgusting fish? So many disgusting fish is the translation, right? That's a joke, by the way. I did say that in the last service, and someone says, that's not what polycarp means. I'm like, I know, it was a joke. <clears throat> and then they told me what it actually means, which I didn't know. Uh, polycarp is, it means uh, much fruit, fruitfulness. Uh, poly and carpos. Um, meaning fruit, so much fruit. So this is, which is a cool, okay, that's a good name right there, right? <laughs> Polycarp, fruitful. This is the pastor of the church of Smyrna. But he um, was clearly an incredible Christ follower. And in the year 155 AD, Polycarp was martyred for his faith in Jesus. He was burned at the stake and then remember when the Apostle John, when they tried to martyr the Apostle John, they boiled him in the caution of oil. He didn't die and he just kept preaching. Well, what do you do with the Apostle that you can't kill and won't stop preaching and you don't want to hear him preach? You put him on a yellow and Patmos, right? Well, like Polycarp, they burned him at the stake and he didn't die. So then they stabbed him and then he did die. And he was martyred in 155 AD for his faith in the Lord Jesus. But I want you to see this. Jesus prepared this pastor, this bishop, and his church to undergo persecution because 60, year, 60 years before his martyrdom, he's 26 years old. In 95 AD, he's 26 years old. John receives this revelation from Jesus on, on the island of Patmos and sends it on that, um, 
that mail circuit, um, mailing circuit that, that, that the churches were on, he sends this letter to the bishop of Poly, uh, Poly, uh, Polycarp, is his name, and he sees this letter and he says, these are the words of, of him who is the first and the last who died and came to life again. Jesus is preparing this church to undergo. They've been persecuted and he's preparing them to undergo more persecution, unfortunately. When he's 26, he received this message. When he's 86 is when Polycarp was martyred for the Lord Jesus. This is really interesting. Uh, Polycarp was actually a liked man in that day. They, they actually liked him in the city. And um, he, he wouldn't deny Jesus. He wouldn't deny Jesus. And, and they, they said, just deny Christ and, and we'll let you live. They wanted him to live. And this is what Polycarp said. Just revile Christ and you can live. Polycarp answered, for 86 years I have been his servant and he has done me no wrong. And how can I now blaspheme my king who saved me? And then he faced martyrdom for that. Jesus said to him, I am the first. I am the last. In other words, I'm eternal. I'm the uncreated living God. I'm the first and last. Your faith is in me. Um, Jesus says this, I was dead, but then I came to life. Interesting that Jesus says, I'm the uncreated living God. I'm eternal, yet I died, and I came to life again. I love that Jesus came to this earth, and he did not forego the experience that, unfortunately, you and I will all experience, which is death, unless the rapture happens. And I'm signed up for that one right there, amen? I'll take the rapture, and I don't have to die physically. woo So I'm on board for that program. But... <laughs> But Jesus says, hey, I, I faced death. I laid down my life. Of course, he's laid it down. It wasn't taken from him, but I laid down my life. I faced death, and I, and I, but I live forever. He declares I live forever. He's encouraging this church that's undergoing this persecution. The implication here is that if Jesus is able to raise himself from the dead, he's the firstborn among creation, how much uh, will he be able to ensure our eternity with him no matter what? This is an eternal perspective. You and I need to have an eternal perspective. This life is meaningless without Jesus. You could do some good things, enjoy some things, but how many know this life is meaningless without relationship with Jesus? But the eternity is just the beginning, and we have to have an eternal perspective. And he is able to raise us up with him on that day, amen? Revelation 2, 9 he gives them the commendation. He says this. He's, he's, he's commending them. He says, I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. You're a rich church. He goes, I see and identify with your afflictions. I identify with your suffering. I identify with your tribulation. How awesome is it that this church was undergoing such intense persecution. They received this letter and Jesus says to them personally, I see what you've been going through. I see what they've been doing to you. I see what they've been saying about you behind your back. I see what you've gone through the last six months, the last few years. I see you, Smyrna. I see you. And church today, I just want to encourage you. This is not unique to the church of Smyrna. The risen Lord Jesus sees you. He sees what you've gone through, especially if you've gone through something for the sake of his name. You've endured hardships for his name. Be encouraged with that. He sees what we have endured. He sees what we will endure. And he says, and this is peculiar, he says, I see your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. Here's the thing about the, uh, Smyrna, the city of Smyrna. Smyrna was not a poor city. Smyrna was actually a very wealthy city. There were economic opportunities, social opportunities for you in that city 
if you played ball their way. Smyrna was a wealthy city, but yet these Christians were under such intense persecution that they had property seized from them. People slandered them. People stole from them. It was because of their faith in Christ and their dedication to Jesus that they were suffering poverty. Here's the problem. Here's here's where the problem arose. Smyrna was one of the most loyal cities to the emperor and to the Roman Empire during that time. And it was the first city in the world to institute Caesar worship. And Caesar worship wasn't just optional. Caesar worship was the law. You had to worship Caesar. Imagine that. Imagine if you had to worship a human. It was of economic importance and social importance to show your allegiance to the emperor and to show your allegiance to the empire. So every year, citizens had to publicly offer a sacrifice to uh, Caesar's spirit, declaring Caesar is Lord. Failing to do so was illegal, and a certificate saying that a sacrifice was offered was required of every resident. How many know this seems rather problematic for Christ followers who have pled allegiance to Jesus and his lordship over their lives and fail to do, and will fail to declare anyone else as Lord. This is, this is the problem they're having. This is why they were under such intense persecution and poverty. This is why Polycarp, you know, in, in the case of Polycarp, the accusations were actually true. He's, he won't worship Caesar. He won't bow down before Caesar. He won't offer sacrifice before, before Caesar. In the case of Polycarp, that was actually true, and that's why he died a martyr's death. But Jesus says to them, I know your poverty. You've given up so much, yet you are rich. How are they rich? They are spiritually rich. They are spiritually blessed. They have immense eternal rewards. And that is the case with any of us if we've given up any material possession or job opportunity for the sake of Jesus, we are immensely blessed. You see, the church in Smyrna, it cost them something to follow Jesus. It cost them. Imagine, imagine evangelizing in Smyrna. You're like, come to Jesus. And they're like, I see what y'all are going through. I don't, don't, I'm not so sure I'm interested in that. There must have been something so real, so genuine, so powerful that someone would say, yeah, I'm going to give up my social status and my career and my prosperity to follow Jesus and become poor to follow him. There must have been something going on there. Imagine trying to evangelize in that city. Man, you, you had to have something real going on. But here's the thing. When you're in a persecuted region like that, people look at you and they have to say, there must be something real going on. Why else would you give all this up? Why else would you undergo this persecution? You could get out of this. How many know that it costs them something to follow Jesus? Um, how many know salvation is a free gift? Thank God for that. It's a free gift that you could never earn. It is the free gift you could never deserve. But all who call upon his name will receive this gift. But how many know that oftentimes salvation is the free gift that will cost you everything? <laughs> right? It's the free gift that... Uh, I have a free gift for you. What will it cost me? Um, well, it's free, but it will cost you your entire life. You got to give your whole life to him. Amen. But here's the deal. God can do something with your life and you can't do anything with your life. So just give it to him anyway. They were poor because of their obedience to Jesus. Smyrna was financially poor, yet spiritually rich. We will see here in a few weeks, we're going to get to the church of Laodicea. Laodicea was 
the church was financially rich, but Jesus said you're spiritually poor. That's the exact opposite. Now, financial poverty is not a sure sign of spirituality. Um, it can complement and be part of spirituality. But I want to highlight two errors that people oftentimes fall into. Many believers have fallen into the ditch on either side of the prosperity issue. They fall into the ditch on either side. Some have wrongfully thought and taken a vow of poverty and those kind of things have happened. Some have wrongfully thought that if you are financially poor, that you are automatically spiritually rich. And that is not the case every time. Others have wrongfully thought that if you're financially poor, you must lack faith and faithfulness in God and don't understand the kingdom. Okay, both of those are errors. Because in the case of the church of Smyrna, it was actually because of their faith that they were poor. These are people who could have produced wealth for themselves, but because of their allegiance to Jesus, they were poor. What do we want? We want to have a prosperity mentality, amen? I, I, I mean... I've been poor before, and I've done okay before. I, I like doing better. I like doing well better than not doing well. Amen? I'll, I'll take that any day of the week. <clears throat> but we want to have a prosperous mentality, but with generous, overflowing hearts. But ultimately, you and I can learn something from this church at Smyrna. The question is this. Will you serve Jesus even if it hurts your pocketbook? Will you serve Jesus even if it hurts your relationships? Will you serve Jesus even if it hurts your social status? That's a question for all of us. Verse 9, he says this, I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. This is pretty strong language, but the Lord Jesus is encouraging these, these believers in Smyrna. He's, Smyrna had a large uh, Jewish population, especially after 70 AD when the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed. The Jews were dispersed throughout the world. Smyrna had a large Jewish population, and unfortunately, these Jews, these particular Jews, were no friends of the early Christians. One of the reasons for this, there are many reasons, but one of the reasons for this is because many of the early converts of Christianity were Jews. And at one point, Christianity was viewed as a sect of Judaism. But when it became distinguished and, and separate in many respects, that's when the persecution began. And in many cases, the leaders of the Jewish community were seeing their followers convert over to Christianity. And when you see your people going over here, it makes the leader insecure. And then persecution begins. Polycarp was burned at the stake because of Jewish slander, the, the slander of the Jewish people in Smyrna and because of Gentile hatred. And Jesus is saying, these aren't true followers of mine. They don't know what they're doing. The word slander here is interesting. It's where we, it's where we get the word blaspheme. Blasphemia is, is the, the Greek word here. It just literally means this, slow or sluggish to call something good that is really good. That's what these, these, these individuals in the city, they were slow, sluggish to call what God was doing in the hearts of those believers a good thing. And it also means this, uh, slow to identify, uh, identify what is truly bad that is really evil. Okay, so their conscience, these, these uh, people in the city, their conscience bearing witness that they're not acknowledging the truth. They can sense and detect that there's something amazing, something real, something genuine going on in these believers, and they refuse to recognize it and admit, this, admit the truth. 
Jesus says, I see their blasphemous slander against you and against me. Again, he's identifying with him. I see it. I, I know it. I see it and I see you. What is this counsel? Verse 10. This is the counsel of our Lord Jesus. Do not be afraid of what you were about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison and to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful even to the point of death. This is why Polycarp was able to face um, this persecution because of this message that the Lord Jesus had given him. And I will give you life as the victor's crown. Jesus actually gave this church what they really needed, which in this case was truth, honesty. He says, you've suffered, and unfortunately, this church was destined to suffer some more. It's hard to understand why God allowed that or why God allows other persecution to happen. If you read through the book of Acts, you can see many times where God supernaturally would deliver Peter, Paul, James, supernatural, on, on several occasions, would supernaturally deliver them from the hands of their accusers, from the hands of persecution. Yet at the end of the story, all of the apostles end up inevitably dying a martyr's death. So he delivers them a few times, and then they die a martyr's death. We don't really know, honestly, for, for the persecuted church, of course we serve and we follow a supernatural God, and we believe and we pray for that God would supernaturally deliver all of these situations. But in some cases... Um, we don't really understand this. Uh, believers are given over to suffer persecution. In some cases, die. It says in the book of Revelation that the church overcame the enemy by the blood of the Lamb and the word of the testimony. And then it says also in the book of Revelation that the Antichrist was given dominion and authority over the church for a period of time. It's very mysterious. Of course, we press in and we just trust God with the results in those cases. He says, the devil will put some of you in prison. There's a lot of theories on, and I've read a lot of commentary and listened to lots of sermons on what Jesus meant by 10 days. Was that a symbol of something else? And I've, I've heard a lot of different things, and I'll let you go research that on your own. Um, but I think, I think there was probably some symbolism is in it, but I think he probably meant a literal period of 10 days to those believers in Smyrna. It would be encouraging if you were thrown in jail, and you're like, okay, this is only going to be 10 days. I just got to hang on for 10 days, right? That would be a source of encouragement. The number 10, though, it might represent some other things, and there's other theories out there in history, but the number 10 itself does have some uh, biblical significance in what it represents. It represents a few things in the Bible, but one thing that number 10 can represent is testing. Okay, He says, he says to them, um, I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. 10 can represent testing in the Bible. How many know there were 10 plagues that God tested Pharaoh's heart? There were 10 commandments which we are, uh, that test us. Joseph went through 10 tests to step into the fullness of his destiny. Israel tried God 10 times in the wilderness. You can read this in Genesis chapter 14. Jacob's wages were changed 10 times. That was a test for Jacob. God was refining him. Daniel and his friends, remember when they were supposed to eat the king's delicacies and they didn't want to eat the king's delicacies. They wanted to stay true to their, to their faith. And Daniel said, test your servants for 10 days. We will, we will eat vegetables and, and, and fruit. Test us for 10 days. And, and they, they passed that test. 
What is one time in the Bible where God says that we can test him? Do you guys know this? And ties, boom, you got it right there. Malachi chapter 3 says, the one time the Bible actually says, test me in this. It says this in Malachi 3, talking about a tenth, the 10%. Again, the number 10 is a test. Malachi 3.10 says this, bring the whole tithe, that is 10%, into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. The Lord says, test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. And then in Revelation 2.10, he says, some of you will be tested for 10 days. Regardless of the 10 and what it represents for them, the Lord gave them two pieces of counsel. And this counsel holds water for any of us who are undergoing persecution for our faith. There's two things here. In the face of persecution, number one, Jesus says to them, do not be afraid. Fear not. Do not be afraid. This is the counsel of the Lord Jesus to the persecuted church. Fear not is, if you don't know, the most repeated, not suggestion in the Bible, the most repeated command in the entire Bible. God commands us, fear not, fear not, fear not. Do you guys know how many times the Bible says, fear not, don't be afraid? Anyone know this? Say it louder. 365, 365 times the Bible says, fear not. One for every day of the year. Amen? How many know that in this world, there are plenty of opportunities to fear? How many have ever been afraid before? You're not, there's uncertainty. You don't know what you're going into. Man, we all, every day we have opportunities to face fear. God says over and over and over in his word, fear not, fear not, fear not. There's a verse for every day of the year. Someone has, I'm sure, made a devotional out of this. It's a, by the way, if no one has, there's a low-hanging fruit right here for you. So <laughs> make a devotional out of it and make some money on it, right? And it'll bless a lot of people as well. Um, fear not. It's 365 times in the Bible. The second um, uh, piece of counsel that the Lord gives them, instruction the Lord gives them, when those who are facing persecution, he says, be faithful. Be faithful even to the point of death. Man, if you were going to undergo that type of persecution, a letter like this from the risen Lord himself would be very encouraging for us. We don't often make this connection. I think Pastor Bill might have referenced this last week. But in the Bible, he says, he says be faithful to the point of death. In the Bible, the word faith and the word faithful come from the same root word. They come from the same root word. Because how many know to, to live a faithful life, if you have faith, you will live a faithful life. If you have a faithful life, that is a sure sign of your faith. Amen? And so um, how many know that when, uh, and this, this is the case when we talk about marriage, uh, when someone is unfaithful to their spouse, it is often described as breaking faith. They, they broke trust. They lost faith in the relationship. When I do uh, weddings, um, I've, I've done quite a few weddings, and um, when we talk about, we always talk about the ring, right? I say to the best man, may I have the rings, please? And then they hand me the ring. And then you hold it up, and you talk to the bride and groom, you know, the, the congregation's there. And then I always say this, a ring is a very precious thing, a symbol of your faith and your love. Faith in what? Faith in God, but also faith in this covenant union that you're making. 
This ring is made out of precious metal, titanium. I have another one that's tungsten, but okay. So it's not really precious. Okay, it's titanium. Less precious than gold. This ring is made out of precious metal. It is a never-ending circle that indicates the continuing love of God, a love that never presents itself arrogant or puffed up. The love of God and the faith of God is what causes his power to move in your lives. So God's the origin of this. And I say this to the bride and groom. I say, I want you to wear these rings as a continual reminder of your faith. Faith in what? Faith in God and faith in this covenant union that you're making right now. I want you to wear these rings as a continual reminder of your faith, a constant reminder of the confession of faith you have made to each other and to God. That's what marriage is. Marriage is not just two people who agree to live together. Marriage is a covenant union between two people with God at the center of it. It's a confession of faith. And Jesus, this is what Jesus is saying to the church of Smyrna. You have made a confession of faith in me. You have made a confession of faithfulness to me. And he, commend, he commends them and he says, I want to encourage you, continue to be faithful, continue to keep going in spite of the afflictions. How many know that when you, when you take vows, you do it for better and for worse? Richness and health, sickness, you know, and all that stuff. That's, that's the covenant you make. And this is the case with the Lord Jesus. For better or for worse, we are giving our lives to Jesus. Amen. Uh, it's, it's not a good thing to come and try Jesus. I'm going to try Jesus for a season. Don't try Jesus. Give your life to Jesus. This is the only way it works. Through the good, the bad, and the ugly. Uh, Emily mentioned this at the beginning of the service, but she talked about sunflowers and how sunflowers, they follow the sun. And I was thinking about this, and then the sun sets, and they're facing west. And then what do the sunflowers do Throughout the night, we looked it up because I was like, I think I have a good illustration here. <laughs> she sent this to me. After the sun sets, the plants reorient themselves, slowly twisting their heads back to the east in anticipation of the dawn. So overnight, these sunflowers, the sun sets, there's no more sun. And what do they do? They go, God, you're faithful. You're faithful because you're going you're gonna to come up tomorrow. The sun's going to rise tomorrow. You're faithful. It's a sign of God's faith. His faithfulness to us. Jesus, the Lord Jesus, encourages this, this church. The risen Lord encourages this church. Remain faithful to me. I am faithful to you. I am the origin of faithfulness. Now remain faithful to me. And I will give you more faith. Amen. Jesus is saying there are eternal rewards to the faithful. He says this. Be faithful even to the point of death and I will, death and I will give you Life as the victor's crown. He who has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. There's this saying that if you're born once, you will die twice. If you're born twice, you only die once. Let me explain. If you're born once, you will die physically and you're dead spiritually, and you will remain dead spiritually. But if you're born twice, that is, you came into this world and you're born again, you will die physically, but how many know that we will live forever with the Lord Jesus? And that is his promise to this persecuted church of Smyrna. No matter what happens, you're going to resurrect with me, and you're going to live with me forever. Amen? I'll close with this. 
First Peter 4, 12 through 16. This is his encouragement to the church. He says, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Peter's saying, like, don't be surprised when hardships come your way to test you. But rejoice in so much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or a thief or any kind of criminal or even a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear his name. Amen. Why don't you guys stand to your feet? If you suffer for the sake of following Jesus, if you've given up economic opportunities, friendships, whatever it may be, you, you, you suffer slander at the, at the hands of other people, you are blessed for his name's sake. And again, in America, we are somewhat shielded from intense persecution because of the freedoms we have here. Um, that could possibly change, and I think is changing in our nation. And we need to be ready church to undergo persecution and to make a stand for faith. I don't want to die for my faith, but I want to be willing to die for my faith. And my prayer is that the grace of the Lord Jesus would be brought to each of us if that ever comes to us. I'm going to pray and then we'll close. Lord Jesus, we love you. I thank you for every individual in this house. Lord, we thank you for the example of the church of Smyrna and the example, Lord, of the persecuted church around the world who undergoes extreme hardships for your name, because they love you, because they are faithful to you, because they are full of faith in you, God. And I pray, God, that we would take that as an example, and God, we would learn from that, we would grow in that, Lord. Help us to be a a support and encouragement to the persecuted, and help us, Lord, to make a stand for you for now and forevermore. In Jesus' mighty name, and the church said, Amen. amen. All right, God bless you guys. Have a great week.